You guys doing good? You're looking beautiful, church. All right, so two world-class teachers and one national-level prophet. One says, you can speak out all the heresy you want, and the other one said, I've got my finger on the heretic button. So this is going to be an interesting, maybe even a little bumpy ride tonight, because I'm not sure what's going to come out of my mouth. So um, I'm going to get right into it. If you want to get to know us a little more, let's do coffee. Um, so I'm going to dispense with the formalities and kind of jump into something. So uh, let's pray. Father, you are so amazing and wonderful. And Jesus, you're the joy of our hearts and our desire. Lord, we look at you and see the epitome of beauty. Everything that it is comes from you. In these next few moments, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and teach, that you bring forth revelation, and that it would be transformative in our lives, Father. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, next year, I'm going to hit 50. And uh, of course, you know, when you start to hit around that 5-0 mark, uh, you start thinking about things. And as I ponder, you know, the 27 or so years that my wife and I have been in ministry, I must confess that I've had quite the interesting relationship with the church. For most of my lives, uh, I feel like most of my life, I feel like the church has spent hating me. And other times, the feeling was mutual. <laughs> but we got through it. Um, but in all seriousness, the um, interesting thing is at the age of 20, my wife and I went into full-time ministry um, for a wonderful church up in Billings, Montana, and it was during that first year that I believe God began a conversation with me about the church. Um, the conversation started when he wakened me from a dream, and at the very end of it, um, he basically talked to me about an awakened church, and his voice thundered in my spirit so loud and so strong that I woke up shaking under the fear of God. So in that experience, in that encounter, I believe the Lord really put within my heart, in all honesty, a deep love for what he built. And I can say that with um, joy in my heart today that um, in my adult life, never have I been hurt as much as I have by the church. Like in all the, all the, all the years of my life going through ministry and churches and all that, uh, experiencing deep pain and rejection and uh, wondering, praying out to the Lord so many times, God, surely this isn't all there is. It can't be just this. I mean, the cross, all that, it can't just be this. Spending, uh, you know, on, on staff at churches, doing a lot of different things, and then wondering, God, surely there's got to be more. Is this it? And so uh, I can imagine that during the conversation that God started those years ago that I must confess that has been the strong end of a, uh, on the conversation that while the church hurt me, I can also say just as equally that never in my entire life have I ever been loved as much as I have by the church. And so the people of God, what we do the best is we embody and we walk in love. We can do it better than anyone else. And so what I'm not going to talk to you tonight about are tainted experiences or, you know, uh, a grudge or any of that because what the Lord has really done in my life and what it is that he's built is beautiful and it's brilliant. And so in this conversation throughout the years, um, I would often imagine myself being the strong part of the conversation when really mostly what I was talking back to the Lord on came out of just ignorance. Not really knowing and understanding what it is that he was really building or built. And so in the process of the conversation, he'd check back in and we'd start talking. And I'd be in prayer, feeling the burden of the Lord over, over a church that just didn't seem to be on fire for the one whose eyes burned like fire. And I would ask God so many times why he wasn't doing it. And, you know, even in ser ser uh, sermon illustrations, I would at times, you know, tongue-in-cheek even say, man, if I just look at this thing in the natural, I must confess I would be tempted to ask Jesus to step down off the throne and put somebody else who's going to come down here and get this thing under control because it's crazy. 
I can imagine that maybe in some of that, God smiles because in me he saw a son that was growing and maturing. That in my heart, I had a passion for him, even though I didn't completely understand what it is that he was doing and calling me into. So, I will say this, that the man before you tonight that's speaking is one who's been both humbled and thankful that God recognized that these were only the statements <clears throat> of a son who loved him but was maturing. Sorry. So when Elder Brandon asked me to speak, I asked the Lord what he wanted me to say, and his reply was, tell them what I built. I'm like, this is easy peasy, Lord. I've spent my entire life preaching on the church. And so, I mean, I, can, I don't even really have to study for that. I'm going to roll in and lay it down. And then, uh, so I had the first draft of the notes all ready to go, and I'm kind of reading through them, and I hear the Lord say, um, Derek, are you going to actually tell them what I built, or are you just going to give them a bunch of preconceived ideas that are more novel notions than anything else? I felt challenged by Holy Spirit that maybe these next two weeks you're going to learn some great things, but I felt like the Lord wanted to put a period on something in my own heart. And so I wiped the slate clean, went back to the drawing board, and I said, Holy Spirit, teach me. So in the process of that, the Lord began to really give me, sorry, I told myself I wasn't going to do this. The Lord began to really give me a stunning image of what he's building. And it's beautiful. So I want to do something really quick before we get started. In these next two weeks, would everyone in this room, and if you're watching, whatever, on live stream, then would you close your eyes with me for just a second? Because in order to get through some of what I'm going to talk about this week and next week, I want you to see and catch an image in your eye of something, in your mind's eye, and let your imagination go. Holy Spirit, we just ask you now to come and put the, the picture that I'm getting ready to read on their hearts, write it on our hearts. And I want to speak to you for just a few moments and let you just begin to see in your imagination something, the end of what all this is going to come to and what we're going to see when it's all said and done. John says this. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, every tribe, and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne of God, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. So it's not theatrical. I say it in tears only because when God writes eternity on your heart, <laughs> it's the most beautiful thing you'll ever see. <laughs> so what did Jesus build? <laughs> he built an assembly that at its fullest manifestation will encompass every tribe and nation all bowing down 
and declaring how beautiful Jesus is. So, <clears throat> all right, so this is what we're going to do over the next two weeks. I don't think we can really talk about church unless we really lay down and explain in a biblical way what Jesus actually built. And in the process of that, after we're done this evening, hopefully I will have gotten pretty much through that. And then by next week, I want to give you a picture of what we could actually be and what the assembly could actually be as a functioning ecclesia. Because while we have learned the devotional and the expression part, while we've learned to sit at the feet and we are learning to come and be taught and grow and equipped, there's a part of the church that governs. And when we stand before the Lord and reach into heaven and heaven reaches back, we release into the earth what the King of Kings is saying. So in order to get started this evening, I'm going to have to first tell you that the word church does not appear in any of the original manuscripts at all. And in fact, I'm convinced to say that the word ecclesia means something entirely different than the word church. If you were to go to any dictionary tonight, virtually any one of your choice, the definitions of church always generally begin with, number one, a building of public and especially Christian worship. So the first definition of church, a building. Nope. Second definition, uh, clergy or officialdom of a religious body. Third, a body of organization of religious believers. Now, this tries to get it right, but it still falls short. And then the next definition, a public or divine worship. Let's have church. Let's go do church, you know, the, the expression says. And then lastly, uh, it's a description of the clerical profession, so then when we talk about church, naturally we need to come up with a study of church, and so we call that ecclesiology. So then if we go look in ecclesiology in a dictionary, we find that it's the study of churches, especially church buildings and decoration. What? The second definition, theology as applied to the nature and the structure of the Christian church. All right, I could probably live with that. But here's the interesting dynamic to this, is that if we really look into ecclesiology, we've got an interesting dilemma. The study of the church only existed since the Re Reformation on. There was no work about what is the church, what's the nature of the church, is it universal, is it local, what is it called to do, what's the mission, there was really none of that. And so how did we get the study of church? We got it pretty much the same way we got the word church. The Reformation brought us this interesting dynamic where the Roman Catholic Church didn't really like what we were doing. So they kind of came out with an understanding and a biblical definition according to them what the church was and what the study of the church was. And then, of course... The Reformation, not to be outdone, came up with our own version of what ecclesia is or church and the study of that as well. And so what ended up taking place is we started to define the church in interesting ways. Pannenberg, a German theologian, Lutheran theologian, said this, that reformers were certainly the first to introduce the doctrine of the church into dogmatics. To be sure, we do not find the theme in Melanchthon's first edition of the Loki, our loci, justification and good works. Um, and he says that only in the second edition did he actually insert after his discussion of the law and gospel and justification and good works a section on De Ecclesia, which elucidates the statements of the Augsburg Confession about the church prior to the treatment of the sacraments. It has been rightly said that here for the first time on the basis of the Reformation beginning, uh, Melanchoth then tried to project and develop a theology of the church as a whole. So what are the takeaways here? The only point I'm really trying to say is that, like many churches, the study of the church is really just a brand new construct that was superimposed or laid upon a very ancient concept. 
what you're going to find out through this study is really the ecclesia isn't new at all. In fact, it's existed all the way back to when God really, um, some would even say that it started in the garden when he called Adam and Eve into fellowship. But you see, what is interesting about the ecclesia is that um, we tried to exchange or tried to superimpose on a modern concept. And so the only new thing about the ecclesia really is that we've been invited to join it, but we're really not building it. Let me qualify that. So before I jump really too deep into this, I'm going to just give you a very broad, and much of what I'm going to say, I'm afraid we're going to have to stay in broad concepts. If you have questions or anything like that, I'll clarify later. But time won't really permit me to go too, too deep. But let me just give you a really quick overview because this is going to help. So in the original Hebrew scriptures, they were called the Tanakh. And so during oral tradition and all these things when they were transcribed, all of the Old Testament first existed as the Hebrew Tanakh. When Alexander Great waged his big campaign, it was said of him, I think Josephus said it, that when he had left nothing left to conquer, he was depressed, and the only thing left to do was to culturalize the entire world with Greek culture, and that's how we got the word Hellenization. And so during the Hellenization time when Greek culture was going around the world, uh, history records that even in Israel and all the Middle East had begun Hellenized, and even during Jesus' time, there was sort of this split between um, traditional Hebrews and then the Hellenized versions. And so the Hellenized, it was believed that they were getting further and further away from their heritage to the point where many of them didn't even speak Hebrew anymore. So it became necessary to translate those Hebrew scriptures into the Greek version, which is what we call the Septuagint. If you see in your Bibles the numerals, Roman numerals LXX, that stands for the Greek Septuagint. The interesting thing about that is Jesus, during his day, quoted from both the Tanakh and the Greek Septuagint. And um, so going forward, what we have to also understand that is, um, so let's just go and jump into it. And see, in the Old Testament, let's look at ecclesia in the Old Testament. So the noun ecclesia is found over a hundred times in the Greek Septuagint, but all of, but four of those, those um, instances, it translates the Hebrew word kahal, which means contingent, assembly, or congregation. The word kahal slash ecclesia in the Greek is a neutral, non-technical word that simply describes a gathering of people. It says nothing about the group that's assembled other than it's a group who have assembled. So what gives the ecclesia its context are the words that are added to it. For instance, in Deuteronomy 23, Chronicles 28, and Nehemiah 13, and Micah 2, uh, verse 5, it describes the ecclesia as either the assembly of Adonai or, in some cases, the assembly of, of Israel. The Greek translation, ecclesia. So the first thing that we have to understand is a lot of the words that get used and translated are not spiritual words. Even in its conception, the word church had really nothing to do with anything spiritual at all. It was originally translated as uh, originally meant of, of the Lord or, or the Lord's. And not talking about the Lord, but just something belonging to a king. And so when we get into Ecclesia, what you start to realize is that the, the, the most simple translation to understand what Ecclesia is is it simply is assembly. It's just a group of people gathered together all in one place. And so in the, uh, in the Old Testament itself, and generally in the New, you will see that, that there are different words, or depending on the context, the meaning of the word changes. There are three, uh, well, so I'll get to that. In um, the New Testament, let's, look at, let's just kind of consider this real briefly, that the word ecclesia appears 114 times, but only twice in the Gospels. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, which we're going to go to right now in Matthew 16. And then it only Jesus is the first to use the word ecclesia. But then after the Gospels, those under other 112 times, what you're going to see that is the existed, the ecclesia actually existed before the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Yet its rapid growth following the ascension proved to be the fulfillment of his words, I will build my ecclesia. 
Because after he did it, it gets talked about a lot. And so in Acts 13, maybe the way to understand what I'm saying is this, is that if you look at a young tree, a young sapling, it is no different in its quality than a full-grown tree. It's just matured. So you have to understand that what happened when Jesus said, and we're gonna, I'm going to break this passage down and really try to exegete it for you tonight, but what really happened when Jesus built his church is that he was only really bringing into fulfillment something that God had started thousands of years ago with a man named Abraham, and when he said that all nations would come and be blessed through him. And so in Acts 13, you see Paul addressing the synagogue at Antioch, and he says in verse 32, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers is this, he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, O you are my son today, I have begotten you, begotten you. And then again in Acts 15, he really brings it home and says, And the assembly, or the ecclesia, fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, and they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replies, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. And he begins to quote out of Amos. And he says that after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So in the deliberation of all of these Gentiles are starting to be gathered into Yeshua, what do we do with them? Do they have to live by um, Hebrew law, the Torah? Do they have to become Torah observant? And so in the deliberation of this, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit inspires James to see what's really actually happening here. This is everything that Jesus, Yeshua had prophesied that he was going to build. That in-gathering, bringing everyone into something. One ecclesia, one people that had literally endured. One remnant people that has existed in every single generation. And so that he goes on to say that the in-gathering of the Gentiles into a remnant was the building process of I will build my church, or ecclesia. And the rapid growth of this ecclesia wasn't the beginning of something new, but it was the beginning of the fulfillment of what God had promised. It was the dawning of a messianic age where all the families of the earth would be blessed. It was the final stage of the consummation of God's covenant promises. So the ecclesia and the outpouring of the Spirit was a direct fulfillment of Yeshua's promise and it broke down the cultural and social barriers that were erected between the Jew and the Gentile. And then from that was launched the ecclesia into its final phase to which Paul makes the point in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for a fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and things on the earth. And then in Ephesians 3, I believe Brandon even read this um, Sunday morning, he said, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, Paul writes, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He goes on to say that of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given that I might preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
And I checked, unsearchable means unsearchable. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the ecclesia, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? The rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. So before we jump into Matthew 16, let me just kind of throw out something here that's, that's kind of really common in the culture, but it's just patently not true. And that is, we, and this really is a good object lesson for some of us would-be scholars, in that if I go to my Strong's and do a word study and think that that's going to be the thing that really gives me the truth, uh, I'm going to be sorely mistaken. So if I look at the Greek word kaleo and I recognize that ek means, uh, the, the first part of that word, that it actually means out, and the second part of that word Kaleo means to call, and so yet you hear the ecclesia say that it means the called out ones. It absolutely does not mean that. Culturally, it doesn't mean that, and spiritually, it doesn't mean that, because the origin of the word had nothing to do with the church or called out ones. It was just simply a meeting where people got together. You'll see in Acts 19, three different instances of the ecclesia that are no different than any other word, yet they couldn't translate it church because it simply wouldn't make sense when they called the ecclesia of the city together where the mob had uh, really gone after Paul and Silas because these were the men that turned the world upside down. Now they had come there. And so what you understand, though, is that the, that the word ecclesia also has nothing to do with a building. And so just to kind of wrap this part up, um, the ecclesia is really just a gathering. So let's go on and let's look at Matthew uh, 16. If you want to turn there, that's great. If not, here we go. Ecclesia only appears in the Gospel of Matthew, and the scholar Sites says on this passage in Matthew 16, surprising to me, that this whole interchange of Jesus building his church has been called, and I quote, the storm center of New Testament exegesis. Like it's ground zero. This one passage of scripture has been written about, exegeted about, preached about, and really, many scholars don't even agree on, on most of or many of the finer points of what's happening here. Uh, Davis, author Davis says on the passage that literally this scripture is one of the most controversial passage in all of scripture. That was shocking to me. I didn't know that. So let's think about why in the world in Matthew 16 would Jesus leave Galilee where he spent the bulk of his ministry in Jerusalem, the city of David, why would he take the disciples, walk 25 miles north into the heartbeat of paganism in the region? Why would he walk into an area known at the time as Caesarea Philippi? And the only answer could be because he was giving, going to give one of the greatest object lessons and illustrated sermons of possibly his entire life on earth. And so he begins to walk into a region that any, any God-fearing, temple-loving uh, Jew or Hebrew would have, would have probably been ordered to stay away from because in its history, even in the geography, it was situated approximately 25 miles north and roughly 60 miles uh, from Jesus' ministry base in Capernaum. And the region stood at the base of Mount Hermon in what is now basically called the Golan Heights. You guys have heard of that, right? And the region is now called Banian. It's its modern-day name, but the entire region was a historical center of paganism throughout the centuries. It was comprised of several cities which were built literally as temples to pagan gods. I mean, it was like the Mecca of, of, of paganism. And so during the Old Testament period, you might remember this, that it was originally known as Baal Hermon or Baal Gad in the Old Testament, and it was where the nearby city, just really close by of Dan, that King Jeroboam built the high place that angered God and led Israel into idolatry. And during the Hellenistic era, era shortly after that, as Hellenism began to sweep the world, during that thousand years of culturalization, the region became known as Panaeus or Panaeus, where the temples to the fertility god Pan were built. If you do any research at all, just go look up on YouTube sometimes Caesarea Philippi. 
And I mean, in its day, when Jesus would have walked by, it was like a creepy goat carnival. Like it, it was, they would have, they would have um, out right at the outer edge, uh, all of these uh, dealers that would sell goats, you would go and buy a goat, and then you would walk up to something really interesting, this really big hole in the rock that was known as the Gates of Hades. During Jesus' day, a temple would have been fixed on top of it now or in front of it. Now you would see it as just a big gaping hole. Josephus Flavius said at one time, in speaking of the, the gates of Hades, he says that it was a horrible precipice that descends abruptly to a vast depth. It contains a mite quantity of water which is immovable, and when anyone lets down anything to measure the depth of the earth beneath the water, no length of cord is sufficient to reach it. It was so deep that literally in the superstition and the paganism of the time, they believed that often Greek gods would inhabit caves. And this particular cave was a gateway to the underworld whose waters were so deep that people would pass through them in order to go into Hades to spend the rest of their lives in, in Hades. And in this particular cave, it was believed that the, god, the Greek god Pan, who was half goat from the bottom, and a man, and you'd recognize him if you've studied or read or even seen some shows on TV where he seems to be um, brought out quite a bit. And then you would realize that they lived in, in believing that, that, that uh, fertility gods would come forth when they would go up into the temple, slay the goat, on the pedestal, and they would throw it into the water. And if it floated, Pan had received the offering. And if the blood began to sweep down, and if you, you could see this on a YouTube or pictures, where literally they had different layers of steps, where if the blood began to flow through and hit those layers, it was an acceptable offering. If the goat sunk into the water, you were really out of luck because you had to keep going back and buying goats until one finally floated. And then, and man, if you were really in a bad place in life, you were one of the ones that at the end of the day sacrifices had to go jump in the pool and grab all the corpses and clean them out. But anyway, it's against this backdrop that Jesus comes and he literally brings, the Bible records that he really doesn't do any teaching, any sermonizing, any miracles, anything here in Caesarea Philippi. All he does is stand literally somewhere near. He, would, he wouldn't have gone up to it or any of, in that area, but he walks just into the region and against the backdrop of Mount Hermon and the gates of Hades, he begins to tell and ask Peter a question. Who do men say that the Son of Man is? Peter's response some say you're John, resurrected. Some say you're Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But all of the answers that people considered Yeshua to have were basically that he had a close connection to the messianic expectations of the day. So in all those answers, they reflected this idea that people at large were connecting Jesus with the Messiah. They just didn't believe he was the Messiah. They believed he was the messenger of the Messiah. And so Jesus intentionally asked Peter, who do they say that the Son of Man is? And after this interchange, he goes on to say, who do the disciples, because he was speaking to the disciples. Sorry, we didn't even read the passage. Let's go there real quick. I'm sorry. In Matthew 13, he says, now when Jesus comes into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So three things are happening here that are very major things in God's timetable. One, Jesus says that it's at the gates of hell that he literally first declares that he is the Christ. He confirms who he is. Secondly, 
He literally declares war on hell by announcing that it is at its gates. They would never be able to prevail against what he's building. And this is an offensive statement, not a defensive statement. What Jesus was essentially saying is, I'm going to go and destroy the gates of hell and nothing it can do can prevail against the ecclesia that I'm building. Remember that whole passage that the manifold wisdom of God is being demonstrated through the church? That's one of the greatest aspects of his wisdom that he demonstrated, that he proves he is God, that hell can never overpower what he builds. So then he goes on and he asks Peter, well, who do you say that I am? And what's happening is all the disciples, because he was speaking to all of them at once, heard what he asked, but G, uh, Peter steps up sort of like as the spokesman for the disciples, and he simply says that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So here's the interesting thing. When we break this down, and I picked this apart in a lot of different ways, read lots of commentary, all that, the problem here is, is that Jesus was not asking an ontological, ontological statement, meaning he wasn't asking what am I or who am I? The disciples would have heard that rather as, given who I am, what will I accomplish as my essential mission? So it was never a question, do you know that I'm the Christ? But as the Christ, what do you understand my mission is going to be? And so then what ends up taking place next is, the disciples, it, the, the passage reveals that what happens is Peter answers correctly. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What's so powerful about that statement is that the disciples were privileged to know something before it, well in advance before he ever had to prove it. So he goes on to say that in Matthew eleven twenty five he says that at the time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and that you have revealed them to the little children. This is a fulfillment of that verse. He goes on to say in Matthew 13, 11, and he answered to them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Meaning there were 12 men that were enabled and that were literally given permission to understand something about a Messiah before we ever really had to go prove it. And then the third big thing that happens is that he begins to start his journey from Caesarea Philippi to the cross. He announces that I'm going to make war on heaven. He issues the war cry and then he gets ready and starts the walk to go do battle. And so the rest of the text is this, that if we look at the gates of Hades, let's talk about that for a minute. That we have to understand that the, the gates of Hades really is the epitome of a Hebrew metaphor and gates always represent strength in Scripture. So when you look at... Um, some of the history behind the whole thought of the metaphor of gates, you find out that the power of a city is symbolically represented by its gates. As an example, Samson removes the door, the doors of the city gates. He's mocking those that are lying and hiding, waiting for him. He picks up the gates, walks through it, and he's literally embarrassing and, and, and basically coming out and making fun of their lack of street, their strength. And so what ends up taking place is he embarrasses them and shows them that they have no strength. Gates are a metaphor for a whole city and the rulers and the powers of the city. Psalm 24 says, lift up your heads, O gates. What, what, the, what the literal Septuagint translation to that would say is, lift up your gates, O rulers. So to understand what Jesus was saying, we have to understand that the word Hades appears 60 of 66 times. It's translated Sheol, grave, pit, place of the dead. It's death personified. Death is given a personality so that we could understand it and describe it better. So Hades literally means the place of death. And so then you look in Scripture and you see that Sheol is personified as a terrifying enemy that 
enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. Into it will descend nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers, Isaiah 5.14 says. It snatches people away, Job 24.19 says. It sets snares, Psalm 18.5 says. It entangles victims, Psalm 116, uh, 16 verse 3 says. And it holds irresistible power over every human, Psalm 89.48 and it was viewed as a place where existence equals nothing. You just simply stop, cease to exist. But this is in contrast to something that if you don't understand the Hebrew nuances of what was going on at the time, you would understand that during Passover, which Jesus was getting ready to come into, the entire city was proclaimed to be holy, and the gates of Jerusalem were claimed to be the gates of righteousness. And so Jesus would enter in through the gates of righteousness while the crowds were shouting, Hosanna. But during Passover, those gates would be called righteous and declared holy, but essentially become anything but. Those same city gates, the gates of the city, would turn against the Son of the living God where he would unjustly be tried and sentenced to death with criminals. These were the gates of Hades, the entrance to the place of death. He submitted himself to the gates of Hades. He triumphed over them by his resurrection. So Colin Brown writes, Thus the prophecy that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church or ecclesia is a prediction of the passion and the ultimate triumph of Jesus' messianic mission that instead of the holy city welcoming its messianic king, Jerusalem will judge him and put him to death. But this action will not be the end of Jesus nor his community because at the same time, Matthew 16, 18 contains a warning to the disciples that is spelled out in the sayings of verse 26 and 27 about bearing your cross, taking up your cross and becoming his disciple. So in resurrection, Jesus, like Samson, carries away the doors of the gates he entered the domain of death and conquered it for all who are his. For through death he rendered powerless him who was or had the power of death. That is the devil, Hebrews 2.14 says. And his triumph over death therefore secures the success of his ecclesia. So what just happened here? Jesus goes into Caesarea Philippi and announces that I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell standing in front of what all of the pagans called the gates of hell, declaring war on the gates of hell, saying that I will go build my her I will go build my ecclesia, and before I do, I will literally go into hell, kick down its gates, and come out with the keys of hell and death and establish my ecclesia that the gates of hell will never prevail against. So, folks, his ecclesia has already built, and you've been called and drawn into it. And the best thing about God is he can always accomplish what he sets out to do. And when you and I stand before him at the end of age, we will stand a part of that remnant of God that's existed all the way throughout the ages. Paul talks about one of the metaphors in the church is that we are the body and he is the head. And the most beautiful thing about that to understand in scripture is that Jesus, our Greek kind of understanding is we always attribute this thought process of the head being more of the seat of our intellectual capacities and we reason and we think through it. But in Hebrew culture, the head really stood for two things. First of all, it was the, it was the metaphor or the picture of authority. And I think most of us got that out of that scripture. But the second understanding of the head is really the source of all life. And so in the metaphor, what is being said, what Paul is basically outlining for us is that Jesus as the head and us uh, as the body means that his headship, through his headship, his life is continually flowing into the body and supplying life to it. But you know what else that means? That means that as the head and a body, there has never been a time and ever will be a time where a remnant, a righteous remnant of God won't exist in the earth. No matter how crazy it gets, no matter how many pagans try to take over the church, there will always be a remnant that has been built upon a revelation that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That will endure every generation, no matter how bad it gets. So I kind of laugh thinking that we are building or we're helping Yeshua build his church. We're really not. We're just coming into what he already built. And it's a beautiful, it was brilliantly done. 
Now, if we go back to some of these passages here, we read something that's very powerful. This is a thing that kind of throws people a lot. He says, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. So we know the word build is actually a metaphor. And here we get into something that God seems to like to do all the time, which is use word plays, where they have several different meanings. And he's pointing out, and you know, we do that all the time. And he goes on to say that he envisions the assemblies of the believers as a house or a building. In other words, I'm building something. What am I building? This is in sync with the phrase, uh, house of Israel or house of Judah in 1 Corinthians 3.9, God's household. Ephesians 2.19, the spiritual house, which really means temple, made of living stones from 1 Peter 2.5. So what he's saying is upon this rock, what rock? Well, we know a whole movement got started off the fact that they thought Jesus was saying he was building a church off Peter. Now, we know that's not true, but what did he actually mean? So the simplest definition to understand that is Peter, whose name was Petros in Greek, and in Hebrew it was Kepha, is a masculine gender name, and the irony is that it means a single stone in Hebrew and in Greek. So you know Jesus is kind of laughing maybe on the inside, I don't know, but it was pretty clever that Peter's name means the same word in both languages. One single stone. And then he goes on to say, but on this rock I will build. Well, what did that mean? He used a different word. And not only did he use a different word, he used the feminine gender of the word. So that rock equals Petra. And so what, what Petra means is a cliff, a, a rocky outcropping, a stone wall or foundation. But what's interesting about this is the feminine form of the word was most often used to denote stones that are grouped together to form a more formidable mass, something immovable, immovable by people in general. So you say you have on one end people saying that Jesus is the rock and the foundation of the ecclesia has been built on the rock Jesus. Not quite there because the Bible does say that he's the cornerstone of that foundation. But what's interesting here is you have Peter or Jesus making this kind of contrast. He's saying to Peter, who is a single stone, and then he says, On the Petra, many stones, I will build my ecclesia. So then he goes on to say that, Peter, as the spokesman for the disciples, offers a correct confession. He therefore was a model of the kind of stones that would be gathered together to form the foundation for Yeshua's ecclesia. So Petra envisions a group of stones all holding the same revelation and confession that Peter had that would be gathered together to form a foundation upon which the ecclesia was built. So what is the church built upon? Living stones in every generation that somehow have a confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That his entire ecclesia, when he went and got the keys of hell and death, are built upon carriers of a revelation of Jesus that really can't be taught to your intellect, that it can only be given you by the witness of the Holy Spirit. And that's why his true church will endure through every age until he comes back. There will always be a remnant who carry that revelation. And that's why the gates of hell will not prevail, because the gates of hell can't steal or take that revelation away. So then in Ephesians 2.19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into what? A holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 19-22 actually provides the key to understanding Matthew when he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall, have been, shall be bound in heaven but the interesting thing about that statement when you break it down went through lots of commentaries went through lots of different opinions all that kind of stuff but probably the best rendering of that statement would really read more like this that i will give you the kingdom of the keys of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven 
and what you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. So the foundation of the apostles with Jesus as the cornerstone really is manifest in the authority that was given to them when Jesus said, I give you 12 the keys of the kingdom that will literally help me to establish and to prove the existence of the ecclesia. So the interesting thing about the way this is worded is this. There's two metaphors here that we got to talk about real, real quickly. Two metaphors, keys and gates. The gates of Hades would not prevail against the ecclesia, but instead the ecclesia would have its own fortified walls with its own gates and its gatekeepers. The keys describe metaphorically the authority which the 12 apostles themselves would have. He gave them authority to go actually become those living stones that would be part of laying that foundation for his ecclesia. And so the binding and loosening in the Septuagint, the Hebrew verb asar means to bind, and it's regularly translated by the Greek verb deo, the same verb used in Matthew 16, 19. The Hebrew verb natar means to loose, and it's twice translated by the Greek verb luo, the same verb used in Matthew. So literally, if you break it all down, and I can't get too deep into it, binding means to prohibit, and loose means to permit. And so you have something really interesting that's taking place here. And so the only way to really describe this is this, that since really the ecclesia comes forth from a decidedly Jewish culture, we would really have to go back and look through a little bit of Hebrew culture to understand exactly what's taking place here. So the question really is, if we go and we start reading through all the scriptures and we realize that you and I as Gentiles have been grafted in what God started years ago, why wouldn't the foundation of the ecclesia and how it would operate and live and act come out of the Tanakh? Why would God need to give authority or keys to prohibit and uh, permit if all we had to do was go back and look at the Hebrew scriptures that were already in existence of the day? What's interesting about that is if you look at the culture, what I believe this suggests is that Jesus was literally saying to his apostles, I'm giving you authority to go and establish, and those keys represent, and that, that authority represents the ability to begin to guide, and he passes to them the understanding to be able to guide and to literally lay out an apostolic didache that really teaches this new fledgling ecclesia how to live and do life. I believe that's proven by several things, but in Galatians 3.8, the Bible talks about the ingathering into the remnant of Israel and how this was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And then I believe that the authority of the apostles was not to create necessarily a different way of life that contradicted what already existed, but to restore it by unshackling it from the traditions that had rendered it culturally bound. So what was interesting, in the NSB it says it this way, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and what shall ever be loot you bind on earth shall have been bound, and whatsoever you loose shall have been loosed. So the interesting thing is, if, if the, apostles, the 12 apostles had been given 12, the keys to bind and loose, how would they do that? How would they actually be able to come into a place where they're able to bind what's already been bound in heaven and loose what's already been loosed in heaven? One writer says it this way, that it, they were able to do it the exact same way the New Testament was written, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Their words and decisions were inspired, and they understood by inspiration of the Holy Spirit how to make decisions. And you see a similar decision like that when, when they stood up at the Council of Jerusalem, they began to weigh the matter of how should we treat Gentiles coming into our new, the, the new ecclesia that Jesus built. As already noted, the primary mark of membership within the ecclesia was the confession of Yeshua as the risen Messiah. But one of the things, the dilemmas that it presented itself is, do Gentiles actually have to start living Torah observant like, like, like Jews? And so we know from that Jerusalem council that what ends up happening is, is that James, James says up ways in the matter and tells them a few things that they need to do. But how and why would they have authority like that to step in and weigh a matter and say and to interpret without some kind of authority that Jesus had to have given them to be able to accurately wield that kind of authority to make a decision like that.
because history records that even in the fledgling New Testament after Acts, that they were all still very centered in the synagogue and were very immersed in Hebrew culture. It was just that the way, as it was called in Scripture, began to start to develop and have fellowship around Christ, Jesus Christ, uh, whereas the temple still stayed uh, locked around the Torah. So I want to kind of wrap up with this, that if we look just really briefly, and I've tried the best that I could to maybe give you a framework for what's happening here, but let me just kind of support some of the things I'm saying by just really taking a quick tour this evening through the rest of the New Testament. This is going to be whirlwind. In Acts, the word ecclesia is found 23 times. 19 specifically refer to the gathering of Jesus' followers, and three refer to something other, like a mob in Ephesus or Stephen uh, talking about the congregation or ecclesia in the wilderness in Acts 17 or 7 8. In Acts, Ecclesia became an insider term to denote groups of people that came together around Yeshua, but outsiders had yet not caught up with that, the, the, the changing in the meaning of the word. So that happens all the time in our culture. Words can mean something entirely different in different per- people groups than the rest of the world. I mean, the, the dictionary has to really work to catch up with all the way lingo is changing. No longer am I sick when I'm sick. I'm saying that, man, that's really cool and amazing. That's sick. So what we understand and what's so relevant about Acts is suddenly only two times in the Gospels the word ecclesia is used, and now suddenly you're starting to see it everywhere from Acts on. Because this ecclesia that Jesus builds begins to thrive, and the ingathering starts, and it begins at the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches his message, and a few thousand come in and immediately are joined into the ecclesia. They realize they've been caught into God's assembly. And so what you see here is in 8.1 of Acts, he says this, or excuse me, in Acts 5.11, you know this story, refers to the assemblies of believers in Jerusalem, talking about Ananias and Sapphira, and great fear came over the whole ecclesia and over all who heard these things. In 8.1, the ecclesia is specifically designated as the ecclesia in Jerusalem, which is dispersed to the regions of Judea and Samaria because of the persecutions, or persecutions perpetrated by Saul. And even though they were dispersed, Acts records that the followers of Jesus were still considered one single assembly, as as 931 indicates. So the ecclesia throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So the point that I want to make here is we start to see the ecclesia taking on a little bit different definition. It was like as the fledgling people of God, we hijacked a word that actually was used more to discover town hall meetings and city councils, and it suddenly becomes used as a way to describe the people of God in a specific location. So what I want to kind of wrap up with is this, is that the ecclesia really means several things, but what it always means is God's people at a certain place and in a certain time. So the first thing that we have to understand about an ecclesia, I don't go to church, I am the church. Well, not really, because technically, and through all the study, the use of the word, you're not really called that unless you're assembled. There, is, there really is no example that I've seen yet. I mean, as, as far as I can tell, every single time from Acts on, the word ecclesia is used in conjunction with a specific group of people at a specific place at a specific time. So I will give you that you can be a part of the church and be whatever or be wherever, but when you're a part of the ecclesia, you're somewhere with God's people. And so maybe a concluding thought for this thing is to realize that Ecclesia always refers to a community somewhere. The Acts uses of Ecclesia is pivotal since Luke's history gives us the first picture of what Jesus built. Luke uses the word to describe the local gathering of believers, but does not use the word to describe what many term the universal or invisible church. 
So I'm not really going to attack that. I'm just going to say I think we could see it a little better, and maybe we'll talk about that next week. But I'm going to close and say that the word ecclesia is found 62 times in the Pauline epistles, twice in Hebrews, once in James, three times in 3 John, and 20 times in Revelation. Conversely, it's missing in 1 and 2 John and 1 and 2 Peter. And it's quite obvious that of all the 62 times that Paul spoke about it compared to the relatively few times that others did, that Paul definitely bore the weight of a maturing ecclesia and was truly the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul emphasized again in Colossians 1.18 that Jesus was the head and we are the body. And really, when you, if you could encapsulize everything that Paul said, you could probably in a very simple manner say that the crux of Paul's theology was Christ as the center of it all. My last comment for the evening in Revelation, Ecclesia is found 20 times, and all but one of these is used in direct reference to the seven assemblies addressed in Revelation 2 to 3, each designated by a local reference, Ephesus, Smyrna, uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The only time the word ecclesia is used in Revelation without direct reference to the seven assemblies, which with the book opens, is in 22.16, when at the close of the book, he says, I, Yeshua, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the ecclesiae, plural, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So what we've kind of talked about tonight is just to lay a foundation because the next time around, and I'm going to summarize it just really quickly, that when Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, he actually did, in fact, build it. So the first thing to understand is that what he built, he completed. Uh, the popular movie says, if you build it, they will come, and that's exactly what happened. He built it, and they're coming. In every age, they're coming. They're being added to where at the beginning, you see maybe just a glimpse of it in Revelation 7, where from every tongue, tribe, nation, all over the world, we will all stand at one point before the throne as a truly one assembled ecclesia, that final place where every people, every tribe, every remnant, and every generation will acknowledge and say to the Lamb of God, salvation belongs to our God. The implications for this in my own life is to realize that while I would like to define church and ecclesia and this and that and the other, and I want to talk about next week how we can actually function because Peter talks about how to behave yourself, how to act in the church or in the ecclesia, which is the pillar and ground of truth. So what do we do? How does this practically work in our lives? But to give you this final thought tonight, to understand that the most brilliant thing that Jesus ever did is not to define how to do it, but he defined what he did. And that in every generation, in every gathering, in every place where an ecclesia exists, he remains the head, and we are the body. And I'm going to close you with this. I don't have the time to break it down because we're at the end. But I will say this, that rather than an identity of the ecclesia exists everywhere all at once, it's really better to understand it as complete ecclesias where Jesus is the, the head and we are the body, and the full manifestation of Jesus is in the midst. So it is God's design at heart of the Father to be 100% a, re a full representation and an expression of Jesus Christ, and it is here. So that when Paul said the church exists by what every joint and marrow supplies, we have the potential to be the full expression of ecclesia at heart of the Father, just like every other true ecclesia somewhere else has within it the ability to, to fully manifest Jesus in their midst. So to just give you something to hang on, and then I'm going to pray, understand that what we can sometimes, I'm going to just close the story with this. I was going through a situation, this has been one of many, where I would feel the, this just anguish come on me, and I'd go into you know intercession and prayer, and I would feel 
just these emotions because I'd look out and I'd, you know, I'd look in sorrow and see what a mess. Even some of the churches I was involved in, I mean, one of them, we're going to sell the building and go buy a Christian nightclub and start a Christian nightclub church. And you realize that in the state of that, I'm like, man, you're saying we want all this and all we're saying is we just want God. And so in the middle of that, I was agonizing one day. I, I think it was on a Sunday, and I was, I, was, I was just kind of undone and complaining. It wasn't really intercession. I was just whining to God. And uh, I, I didn't notice because I was talking so much that he hadn't said a word, and he was actually completely silent. I suspect I might have even been there alone. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, I got tired and wore myself off from my spiritual, or no, fleshly temper tantrum. And later on that night, I, I think I had uh, turned off National Geographic or something, and I was getting ready to go, go to bed and wasn't even thinking about the Lord or anything, but yet he comes up and he says, Derek, it was stern as I've ever heard him say, I don't ever want you to hear you call ugly what I say is beautiful. And I saw this picture of a beautiful bride just, just literally adorned with the most magnificent, magnificent bridal dress. She was stunning. And Jesus filled my heart with this idea that even though in my short-sightedness and in my earthly, maybe soulish place in my heart, and he challenged me and said that if you will allow me, I will let you see the bride the way I see it. So tonight, Holy Spirit, I ask you, I've given a feeble attempt to try to describe exactly what you accomplished, Yeshua, but I ask you to come now, and I ask you to reveal and put into the hearts of every single person in this room the same thing you did to me that night, that you would open the spiritual eyes of every person in this room, and that you would allow them to see how beautiful and brilliant what you built is. Lord, I ask you that in this room, you would cause every single person to look into the eyes of the bridegroom and through his eyes see the beauty of the bride. Lord, I ask that in this room tonight, that you would fill us with such beauty and love and adoration and admiration at the beautiful thing that you built and that you've called and drawn us into as living stones into a beautiful house that you're building. Lord, I pray that you would open the spiritual eyes and help us to see from heaven's perspective the greatness and the wonder and the majesty of an ecclesia with Jesus at the center of it all. And so now, Lord, I ask that you begin to release a fire into this body that would cause every heart to gaze upon the one whose eyes burn like fire and that it would ignite our hearts to burn with that same fire of the Father's passion for a bride that he's soon to deliver to his son. Father, I pray that going forward, that you would truly raise up the ecclesia at heart of the Father to truly become a revelation of the Father's heart to Lakeland, to the nation, and even to the world. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.